I'm George Lizos, spiritual teacher, psychic killer, and number one best-selling author. Growing up in a small and Christian community, I was judged and rejected for being gay and different. After a futile two-year attempt to change who I was born to be, I called myself a human abomination and almost took my own life. Fortunately, in my darkest moment, I saw the light and ventured on a healing journey of love, forgiveness, and spiritual awakening. Yet my dating life since hasn't always been all roses and rainbows, and my past dramas and traumas have definitely kept things spicy. Fast forward past many awkward dates and disappointing sex, I created Can't Host to challenge toxic gay stereotypes, explore the complex dynamics of gay sex and relationships, and create opportunities for healing and growth. If you're a gay guy seeking more joy, freedom, and authenticity in your sex, life, and relationships, you're in the right place. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Can't Host. I'm your host, George Lizos, and in today's episode, we're talking about a trans man's journey of reclaiming their faith. Specifically, I chat with Alex Regan. Let me read you a little bit about Alex. Alex is an author, interfaith minister, speaker, and transformative spiritual coach who uses his intuitive wisdom to help guide people towards their own inner knowing. Born into an evangelical Christian family that prevented his true identity as a trans man from emerging, he spent years in depression, anxiety, and addiction trying to break free of the oppressive beliefs that bound him. His journey at last led him to sobriety, shamanism, and then seminary, which helped him reclaim his faith and trust in the divine. Through speaking engagements, workshops, one-on-one, -on -one, and group sessions with clients, Alex is profoundly dedicated to helping others speak their truth, release shame, and find oneness. What I really loved about this episode with Alex is that Alex's story, despite the context of him coming out as a trans man, applies to everyone's life. We all go through struggles in life. We all go through shame and traumatic experiences and rejection from our family and friends. So his journey of reclaiming his faith and overcoming the rejection that he faced from society and his family, it's truly universal. And there's something here for everyone. I definitely related to a great degree with my own journey coming out as gay. And Alex's tools and guidance are very similar to the kinds of tools and guidance that I used to come out and reclaim my faith as a gay man. So specifically, we chat about Alex's journey of transition, the spiritual tools and the healing modalities that he used to heal after the traumatic experiences he went through. We talk about how to deal with family and friends not accepting you and how to overcome that rejection and find a family elsewhere, essentially. We talk about Alex's spiritual and physical transformation following his transition and also how to reconcile your religious and spiritual beliefs when you feel rejected by your current faith. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast and come follow us on Instagram and let us know how you enjoyed this episode. My handle is at George Lizos and you can find all of Alex's information in the show notes below as well. Enjoy this episode with Alex Regan. Hey Alex, how's it going? It's going well. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I am so happy to have you here to chat about something that I've always wanted to chat about. I wanted to shine the light on trans men born into very religious families and how they managed to deal with that. Part of my personal story has had to do with 
coming out of the closet while being in a very Christian family as well and being into the Christian faith myself and my journey of coming out with that wrestling with my religious beliefs and eventually finding a new kind of faith, which is very similar to your path as well from a different perspective, of course. But let's start from the beginning. I want to hear a little bit about when did you realize you were different? When did you realize that how you felt inside was different than how you looked? Yeah, uh, great. That's that's a great question. You know, I think honestly, it, it traces back to probably even about six years old. Uh, you know, one of my first main memories of it popping up was you know, my brother, some of our other friends were playing in the front yard. We decided to like run through the sprinkler. So I just, you know, we all threw our shirts off and threw them off the side so they didn't get wet. And we're just running in the yard. And my mom came out and said, you cannot go outside. You know, girls can't go outside without a shirt on. And I remember kind of looking at them and looking at me. And I was like, I don't understand, you know, because we looked the same, especially at six, nobody, you know, everybody looks the same at six. And, but it was that first moment of my brain was kind of like, are you sure? Like, I think you're confused, you know, like I really had this, like, I don't understand moment. And then I think that just began to happen more and more, the older I got just moments where I was like, this doesn't seem right. This doesn't feel like I fit in, you know, and once we got, of course, to the sex ed in school, I was really then confused. I was kind of like, wait a minute, you know, what, what do you have down there? You know, that's not what I have. Um, but there was a lot of confusion in that. And it, it honestly wasn't until I began some deeper spiritual work and shamanic work that I started doing journey work to go back to some of those younger childhood memories and sort of unlock them that I started to be like, oh my God, you know, like I have always felt this way since I was a very little kid. Yeah, I just didn't have the language or the words certainly for it at that time. Yeah, I'm very interested to, to hearing more about that transition and how you eventually became more conscious of how it all works because I'm thinking back on on my own life growing up as a gay boy when I was like six years old and I always knew that I was gay but I didn't even have the vocabulary for it because I grew up in a very small society that gay people were not being talked about so I didn't know what that was so what I felt felt very natural like my my attraction to other boys but I didn't hear anyone else talk about that so it was just very confusing so at what point did it shift in your mind that you know what I feel different than how I look and I need to do something about that yeah so I mean I think for me energetically as a child you know it was that same where I was like attracted to the other to the girls I was like oh I don't know if I should be feeling that way you know and it felt like a little like but this like exactly what you said this feels very natural this feels like who I am yet I had heard some rumblings of sort of gay people are not good gay people are going to hell gay you know even at a very young age so I had kind of this you know even though I couldn't process that I think there was still part of my mind that was like uh oh, you know, like, I don't, I don't know if this is going to be a good thing, but it felt so right and true to me, you know, and by the time, certainly by the time I hit puberty, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm definitely attracted to, to girls, you know, at, at that point, I still didn't have language for any of it. So I really didn't identify as anything. I mean, I continued, I dated boys all through junior high, high school into college, you know, because, you know, so in fact, most of my, you know, cis women friends said, oh, like you had more boyfriends than I, than I did. But I think part of it was also, I felt like I had to kind of put on this show to like, kind of be like, don't look over here, you know, look, look over here kind of thing. It wasn't until much later that I began to have the potential language. One of my dear friends, when I was in my late twenties, just kind of said to me, you know, are you sure you don't want to go by he, <laughs> you know? And I was just like, 
that's an option. You know, I just remember my brain kind of exploding and just being like, I didn't even know you could do that. You know, it was really just so far removed. And even then it took me quite a few more years to be like, actually, yes, I do, you know, and to be able to be open enough with my own self even and not afraid enough to say, yeah, I'm going to own that. And that that's totally who I am. Um, But it was a long, long road. It definitely was because nobody teaches us these language. I mean, nowadays there is more talk about it because exactly. we have the trans movement. We have so much awareness about it and people are talking about gender and sexuality and sex and all the differences. But back then, nobody knew and nobody was talking about that. There wasn't even vocabulary to do so. And even oh, now there is so much backlash around like changing your pronouns, etc. Now, definitely. let's talk about the dynamic between sexual orientation, gender and sex with for trans people. How do you perceive it? How does it work for you? And the reason I'm talking about you specifically is because I understand that each person has a different kind of understanding and they they relate in different ways. So how do you see that? And how do you identify? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, for me, I think, you know, I, I kind of joke with my editor that, you know, when I was a child, uh, like I said, I was attracted to women predominantly, even though I did, you know, date boys and stuff like that, which felt like the societal correct thing to do. But when I came out to my parents, the first thing that uttered out of my mouth was, I'm not attracted to boys, <laughs> you know, because it was just like, I didn't know how to say the language of, you know, I'm gay or I'm a lesbian or whatever the words, you know, might have been. And what's really funny now is, you know, as I've transitioned and become more just like secure and confident in my own self. Uh, you know, I definitely identify as queer. I definitely have an attraction to, I, I could be attracted to men. I, you know, I'm happily married to a, a cis woman, but that has freed me, I think, in a lot of ways to like allow myself to not feel so caged up and boxed up in a very, again, binary, it has to be this way or that way. Um, and that's sort of what I love about that word queer. <laughs> you know, it can be, it can just be this big umbrella <laughs> that encompasses uh, so much. And so, you know, for me, I do identify as, a queer trans man. I use he and him pronouns. I also realize that it's been freeing to not necessarily feel like I want to just shove myself into another box just because it's a different box than what everyone else has tried to to shove me into. Yes. And I love that you talk about the word queer because I've I'm the kind of person, firstly, that I personally enjoy labels because they help me feel safe because that's the kind of person that I am, I like compartmentalizing things. But at the same time, I'm starting to realize the more I'm having such conversations on this podcast that my labels can also limit me if I allow them to. So it's just a matter of of managing and negotiating the the boundary between is this label empowering me right now or is it limiting me? Because, for example, my own personal journey, I have always, as a gay man, identified as bottom, like my sexual preference. Mm -hmm. And then it wasn't until the the reason I started this podcast is when I realized that I'm actually, I enjoy top as well. And I'm actually versatile. I I had never allowed myself to do so because I was so fixated on that label. Now I've discovered a new label, side for the Mm. gay community, for gay men, which is like gay men who don't enjoy like penetration, penetrative sex. They just enjoy oral. I'm like, you know what? I enjoy that as well. So again, I'm trying to find out a specific category to put myself on my my side verse, on my side top, on my side bottom. Right. Then queer comes into the picture. (laughs) Right. And queer is like, you know what? Call it whatever you want. It's queer. Let's just enjoy it. 
<laughs> right. Agreed. And I love too, that it feels like that's such a reclaiming word as well, because for so long that that word had been used to demean us and our community. And it's kind of like, you know, no, we own that word. You don't own it. You know, like we get to use it how we see fit. And that's, I think that's empowering for all of us as well to just allow it to be queer. Queer means something else to every person you ask, which is so amazing. You know, like every person who might identify even as queer, it means something different to them. And I love that. I think it's spectacular. 100%. I think that's what the queer community is all about. That Agreed. acceptance and that expansiveness of that word. So Agreed. how did you accept it at the time when you realized mm -hmm. and you were, you were sure? Did you accept it? Did you not? Because... As I've read in your book, you had strong religious beliefs at the time. You were yeah. brought up in an evangelical Christian family. So talk to me a little bit about faith, how important faith for you and the role that played in your coming out journey. Yeah, you bet. Um, I mean, it definitely made it hard for me, um, you know, like. I felt like I kind of had this disassociation where I was like really split between these two parts of myself because, you know, I was so, you know, inundated with Christianity from a very, very small, I mean, from birth, literally probably in the womb actually. And so like, it was all I really knew. And most of the people, a lot of my community were from church, you know, sure. I had friends that were friends from school or friends from sports and other places, but the predominant amount of my friends were from church and from that community. So it was something I always had to hide, you know, even though I sort of knew like, whoa, this is who I am. I really had to hide that for so long. And, you know, I talk about this in the book when I was probably about 12, my mom and dad had a friend over and it turns out their friend was their son came with him. And he was probably, I guess, in his low twenties, you know, early twenties. And he was, HIV positive, but had turned to full-blown AIDS. And he was, you know, he was on his last legs, you know, it was mm. definitely towards the end of his, his life. And I remember, you know, them being all panicked, you know, look, don't touch anything he touches and, and like cleaning the dishes with bleach. And it was this very like, what was happening? You know, it was like this very kind of alarming. And then they told us to go downstairs. And my brother said, I'm going out. And he left and went off with his friends, but I had to go downstairs, um, which was weird because my parents never kind of kicked us out from adult conversations. So I like knew something was, was awry. And so I snuck downstairs and turned the light off and acted like I went into the, you know, other room, but I just sat at the bottom of the stairs and I listened to my mom, you know, tell him that he was going to go to hell and, you know, that this was like God's punishment. And it was like, you know, it was heartbreaking. I mean, I remember just kind of sitting there shaking, just kind of crying, just kind of like, I want to run up there, you know, and just kind of save him even from my mom. And I remember him just like letting out this final little sort of like almost whimpering, like, I don't want to die. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to, you know, like, I I'm sorry, I won't be gay anymore, you know? And, you know, I remember that he died, God, it must've only been about a month or a couple months later. And so I feel like, you know, my little brain could not process all of that, but what it could process was I will either choose myself and lose them, or I will choose them and I'll lose myself. Like I, I knew that, like, and so that sort of began this journey of what do I do? You know, I felt like caught between a rock and a hard place for the next, you know, almost decade before I did come out. It was a hard experience because I felt like a lot of self-hatred, self-loathing, like there's something wrong with me. I must be broken. And that took me, you know, by the time I came out in my early twenties and then kind of got away from my family moved, did 
you know, my own thing that helped me, but I had to, in a way, just sort of like renounce Christianity. I had to just say like, I'm done. I don't believe in God anymore. I don't, because it was like the only thing I knew to do to sort of like disconnect myself enough to say like, okay, let's try to heal a little bit, you know, cause I was just so heartbroken and emotionally, spiritually, everything broken from that experience just even from that 12 year old, but then what happened later as I came out and, and the reactions I got, et cetera. So, yeah. So I had to kind of give up my faith for several years for most of my twenties. I kind of was like, I don't believe in anything. I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist, you know? And I think it was like self-preservation because that was sort of the only way for me to find um, some truer version of myself uh, that wasn't tied into all that other stuff. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm just I was just so shocked to to hear about your mom's like uh, what, what your mom said to that to that boy. And also at such a young age, hearing your parent disapprove of someone it, with such strong statements. Yeah, it marks you and it affects you and it prevents you from coming out. Yeah, I remember sure. I heard my dad once make a joke about a gay person and that scarred me for life. And I had that saved in my mind. Yep. I, I ended up turning 25 years old to, to come out to my dad because I had that little voice in my head that I heard one little joke. Yeah. Nothing about hell, nothing about, it was just a joke. And that yeah. just stayed with me for so long. Imagine hearing something like that. And especially when you have such a strong connection with the church. Now, tell me a little bit about your, were you religious because you also enjoyed it or was it because of the conditioning? Like, were you into it? I mean, uh- that's a great question. I mean, I think for some of my younger years, I was maybe like, oh, okay, well, this is what we do. We go to church, we do this thing, you know, but when I, by the time I got to high school and started going to like the youth events and things like that, like I really, really bought into it, you know, like I really, you know, like I loved Jesus. Like I was like, I'm in this, you know, like, and so that was also the hard part. I mean, when I came out and sort of lost my family in ways, at least temporarily when, when the sort of explosion happened, when I lost a lot of community, a lot of people from church, a lot of family members, what, what hurt more was really losing God in a way. Like it left this void in my life that was, you know, I I, I still can't to this day really put into words and explain what that void felt like, because it just felt like they had some sort of copyright on God, you know, like they owned God and that they took God for themselves. And I was sort of like left out in the cold. And, and that was, that was probably one of the hardest things to like overcome and process through and and come to a different understanding of as I got older and, and to realize nobody owns God, you know, nobody, nobody just can take God from someone else. And that God is not, you know, God is much bigger than all of us. So no one church, no one organization, no one religion owns, owns God. And, and that took me a lot of, a lot of work to get to that place and a lot of healing, but I'm glad that I did that work because, you know, that helped, that helped me heal for sure. Yeah. Cause even when we lose our family, we always have our faith. We always have got something to look like to look at for support. So when that's taken away from us as well, because on paper written by other people, not God, (laughs) there's something wrong with us that we feel completely, I think you use a perfect word there, void. We feel like completely lost. So tell me a little bit about how did you tell your parents and what transpired? 
Well, the first time I told my parents, it was just kind of like, you know, a very rapid, like, I'm not attracted to men, you know, and then they kind of figured out what I was saying. And, and, you know, it was just silent for a minute. And then kind of what my mom said to that kid began to seep into her lips, you know, like, well, we can't, you can't be gay. This is not right. You know, it was like, this is a sin, you know, just all that stuff. And my dad was quiet for some time. And so I kind of thought, is he maybe like, is he going to be more rational about this? I don't, you know, I don't know. And then finally my dad spoke up and he said, you know, oh, there's a place for that. You know, we can send you to, you know, some meaning conversion therapy. And thankfully I was over 18. So I immediately was like, no, like I'm not doing that. Like you can't, you can't make me do that. And that was sort of the initial like slamming of doors. Like then they realized I was like, I wasn't asking them for help. I wasn't like coming to them like, oh, I need to fix this. I need to fix me. And at that point, they both pretty much shut down uh, for quite a while. And I was uh, just about finished with uh, with college and they were, you know, helping me pay for, you know, tuition and things like I mean, I was working like a waitressing, bartending job, you know, like I didn't have a lot of money. Um and so a couple of weeks later, my brother and I talked and he was just like, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm a little worried. They might like cut you off. You might not be able to finish school. Like maybe you should try to walk it back just for like a little while, you know? And so that was the last thing I wanted to do. But I also was totally freaked out. Like I was just like, you know, tuition was due in just the next couple of probably the next week or two rent was going to be due. I didn't know what to do. And so I kind of just said like, okay, I'll, I'm going to try, I'll try again, you know, kind of just to like, hopefully take some of the pressure off. And I don't know that they believed, but it was enough for them at the time. And it was enough for me, I guess, at the time to just be like, let me just get through, you know, I felt like I was uh, coming in for a landing without the landing gear, you know, in a way. So then when school finished, I got done with school. I stayed with my grandmother for the summer and then I moved away to live in another state. And I was fully intent on telling them around that fall when I got, got out of state, you know, got away. And the night before my dad's birthday, one of my cousins actually told my parents, like they outed me to my parents. Oh, um, worst thing ever. Yeah. And so that was brutal because I called my dad on his birthday and he's like, you know, you better check your email. And frank, frankly, I have no recollection of what the email even said. Cause I know I just kind of blacked it out. You know, after that ensued a lot of years of sort of like, you're dead to me, you've ruined our lives, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff. And so it was really, really rocky for a lot of years after that, almost a, I would say almost a decade, probably about eight years. So kind of like what I knew would happen when I saw that whole experience with my, our friend's son dying, I, I repeated that, you know, in, in some way, I mean, she never, I can't recall exactly what she said. So she may have even said, you're going to go to hell or whatever, you know, but I yeah. have so blacked out most of those, uh, the yeah. actual words of the original two. Rightfully instances. so that they sound very traumatic. And I'm so sorry you had to go through that. Now, at the time, did you come out to your parents as a lesbian woman or as a trans yeah. man? As a lesbian woman, because still at that time, I had no, I mean, where I was growing up, where the people I was around, like I had no frame of reference for someone even being trans. I dressed like a boy. I, I presented more masculine, but everyone just called me a butch lesbian, you know, at the time. Huh. But I also still just never felt right either. Like I just never 
still felt like, I don't know, but okay, this is what you call it. Um, you know, kind of thing. Cause it was all I knew to say, cause yeah. I was attracted to women. So that made me a lesbian, you know, kind of thing. That was another almost 15 years before I then came out. It was in my mid thirties when I was finally like, I can't keep doing this. I can't just keep going by she, I can't keep identifying like, this is not me, you know? And that's when I finally was like, this is who I am. Like I am a guy, I'm going to go by Alex, you know, kind of gave them that whole spiel. And the response was not as traumatic. It's been more just very, like, we just ignore it <laughs> a little more. Uh, like they don't really call me Alex. They, they certainly don't use he and him pronouns. And so we just kind of flirt somewhere in the middle of this, you know, calling me my birth name and just awkwardness around things like that. So yeah. To this day, no, so that they still yeah. don't use your pronouns. So that they can't they yeah. haven't managed to find peace with it. Yeah, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah. Now tell me a little bit about the growth and the change and the transformation. How did you find your faith again? And in what ways? What yeah. has been the healing journey like? Yeah, I mean, part of it started that same friend who actually is now my wife that said, Hey, do you think you want to go by he? Uh, you know, she introduced me to, to some different spiritual things. Like she said, Hey, have you ever heard of Abraham Hicks? And I was like, nope. Oh, I love and Abraham. I, I love Abraham too. And 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 she gave me a bunch of their CDs, you know, back in the day. I think I'm dating myself by saying CDs. Um, I could have said cassettes or something. Um <laughs> So, you know, I started listening to those, started reading their books. And I was like, this is fascinating. And I think it felt so different from like Christianity, you know, so different from what I was raised in that I thought, oh, this is something I can get behind. And so I really started going in, finding more stuff like that. Like I started having Akashic Records readings and other intuitive readings. And I started reading all kinds of books from all the public, Hay House, Sounds True, all these different, you know, some of that out there woo-woo stuff as some people would call it. <laughs> and I loved it. And it was tarot cards and astrology. And all of a sudden it was like, I realized God is just this infinite thing that is beyond, again, any one religion, any one name, any one thing. And I started doing um, shamanic work. I got sober. I started diving further into the shamanic work. I started doing not just my own work with, you know, a shaman, but then I started getting trained how to do that for other people. And, and all of that really was part of this space of now I was like going back sort of in these meditation visualizations. I was like journeying back to those childhood versions of myself mm. and, and trying to heal that stuff, telling myself, you know, from my adult big me to that little six-year-old, like, Hey, this wasn't your fault. This is nothing you did wrong. Like, it's okay. You were running in the front yard with a t-shirt off, you know, like just literally almost telling yourself the things you wish a parent had told you, you know, and, and instead I was just telling myself and it was really in those moments too, where I started to realize all of those little versions of me all went by he, like I was referring to myself in the meditations as he, he, he. And finally, my teacher said to me, do you realize you're saying he about all of your like younger selves? And it was just like in that moment, the light bulb clicked. And that was, so it was like the healing, the transformation, the spiritual journey unlocked me as my true self also in a way. And that was really cool. Like that was really an extraordinary part of the journey. And then I found my way to an interfaith seminary in New York and got ordained as an interfaith minister. And that was amazing and spectacular and such a journey. Cause it was like, 
you're going to let a trans guy be a minister. Awesome. You know, like I was just like, what world is this? All of that together just began opening me back up and allowing me to heal so much of that pain and so much of that void, right? The void started to fill its way back in with what, what, what I believe God really is and not just this God that's sort of, you know, pre- procured like this very special God that's made by these certain uh, religious groups and people. Yeah. So you stripped away the dogma of religion and you allowed God to just reveal themselves to you. Now, let's talk exactly. a little bit about the, the, the tools you use, because I love that you followed your own spiritual journey and you because I also use books to heal. That was my healing journey as well. I didn't know where to turn when I left the church. I'm like, you know what, what's out there? And then Louise Hayes book came up. And then Amazing. of course, Abraham Hayes. Let's list the tools you use to change because I think this is going to be very help, uh, very helpful for people listening, not just trans people, but all people going through something traumatic like that. So what have you used to help yourself? One is shamanic work, Abraham Hayes. Was there something else as well? Definitely. So- one, I would say also traditional therapy. I've used all kinds of traditional therapy modalities from cognitive behavioral therapy to art therapy to you name it. So that's definitely been a healing part of my journey as well. Shamanism, you know, it's so hard to explain because it's kind of like the word queer or gender and all this stuff. It's like, it's so different for everyone because it has, you know, shamanism is, is throughout all cultures. There has been stories and histories of a shaman who's like a healer and things like that. And so I'm always very careful to just identify my own experience of that and to not say this is what shamanism is, but it's a, it's a spiritual practice of basically going into sort of a meditative, like trance space, and then using a form of what is visualization, but I believe it's my guides, whether that's spirit animals or ancestors, angels, et cetera, guiding me on a journey, on a visualization. To me, it, it happens almost like a movie on a screen. Like I'm able to just see it all transpire. So I'm able to, you know, meditate and go back in time to my younger versions of myself. I've been able to go forward into the future in, in instances. I've been able to go to other places that are not this earth and this place. If I'm in a hard place, that's always my go-to. Like I will put on some drumming music, sit down and I will see where my guides need to take me or what healing is available to me. I've also done the Akashic Records. That's basically just like sort of seen as a record of all things of all through all time and space, essentially, almost like a the woman I used to go to, it's, it's like a filing cabinet and I just pull it out and I can pull up any information that's ever, you know, happened and transpired. And, and that was very helpful to me to just go to someone who that was their area of expertise and have a session with her, ask questions, get answers, and then take that and start to use that um, to expand upon my own work and my own experiences. And I've I've gone to energy healers who are just working with the energy body and healing your, your chakras and, uh, and different things like that. And one of the other things I've done a lot of is, is theta healing. The best way I describe it is it helps you sort of dig down beneath toxic beliefs and things that are blocking you. And usually it's like unconscious things, but when you start to ask questions, you can help someone dig beneath what's really going on and get to some of the unconscious beliefs, things like I'm not good enough. I'll never be able to do it. I'm broken. Things like that we all are affected by and sort of pulling those out and and giving some space there to allow you to put new, better beliefs and ideas um, in your mind about yourself as opposed to just continuing to go forward with things that are blocking you and, yeah. and things like that. So 
I love theta healing and what a wonderful like array of tools and modalities you just mentioned. And if you're listening and you are interested about these modalities, I also have another podcast, my Lead Up Lightworker podcast. And we've done episodes on all of this topic, shamanism, energy healing, Pashic Records, manifestation. So I'm going to paste all the links in the show notes just so you can access them. There are little introductions uh, with different experts on those modalities. Let's talk a little bit about what your transition was like. So what does a transition entail, first of all, because there are different types that you can do and how did it affect you emotionally, psychologically, spiritually? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the first part of transition for me began with just saying to myself, like, I am a guy. I have always been a guy. Like, I have never felt like a girl. I never felt like I belonged in female spaces. I mean, I felt like in the early junior high, late elementary school, like I remember even in locker rooms just being like, I shouldn't be in here. This just doesn't feel right. Like I felt like I was invading women's space. You know, it just, I knew that as a kid. And so that first, just admitting to myself of like, oh my God, I want to go by he, like, I, this is, this is like who I am. That was, I think the first real big steps of the transition. And then kind of going through the fun of like, oh, and I could use any name I want, you know, and, and getting to that point where I decided and settled on Alex. And, and then it was like this initial coming out again of telling my friends, like, okay, I'm going to go by Alex and he and him. And the beauty of that time was, is that there wasn't really any of my actual friends who were like my close friends who had any issue with that. Yeah. Like every single person that was in my close circle, but up to, you know, even people I was friends with on Facebook who hadn't seen in a decade or things like that. You know, I had maybe a few people who kind of just said like, well, you'll always be so-and-so to me, you know, whatever my birth name was. But for the most part, everyone in my circle was just like, awesome. That seems accurate. And just like was there for it. And so that also just like changed the experience for me. And I think it healed a lot too from what yes. had happened the first because couple of times. I always say that friends are family we choose and it's Definitely. way stronger connections there. No, no kidding, for sure. You know, in my family, like I said, they were, it's, you know, been hit or miss. I mean, I have some cousins that have no problem. They you know, call me Alex, they call me he, they just go right along with it. And that's nicer because they were obviously younger when I came out, mm. you know, cause they're all younger than me. So they were obviously teenagers and stuff still when I was coming out the first time. So now they're all adults themselves. Many of them have their own kids. And so it's like, I am getting to have a different experience with support from other extended family members. But even for most of them, I tell them, I don't consider you my family. We're friends. And to me, that's family because family to me has not been family, you know, what it is to a lot of people. And so my friends have been my family and my friends have been my people over all of these years. So, yeah, so transition started with all that. And then I began to, you know, I wanted to get top surgery. So I had to have, you know, six months or something of therapy with a specialist who could then write me a letter so I got all that and I had surgery in um, October of 2016. And that was one of the hardest things I've ever done. I mean, I was not as healthy as I thought I was before the surgery. And so afterwards, my recovery was a lot more difficult than I anticipated mm. that it would be. I had a lot more pain and a lot of exhaustion. I mean, for months and months and months, I was just exhausted. You know, I just walking around the block and I would just have to lay down, you know, it was just, it was a really, really hard recovery. 
And at the same time, it was also like the best thing that I could have done for myself. Yeah. So that was really powerful. Then I was able to, after that, legally change my name and gender markers and all of that fun stuff, which is a long, arduous process with the government and all this stuff. Yes. Thankfully, I got it done before the presidency changed and the uh, yes. thing got a little more difficult for folks. So I am super grateful that all of that stuff, including my passport, social security, all that stuff was changed. Then last fall, I ended up, I had a hysterectomy, which was partly for health reasons. I was also just having some abnormal results and issues, but decided, well, I'm not going to just keep having these other procedures that had to go under anesthesia and all stuff over and over again, like just take it out. And that was spectacular. I mean, it was like a six month fight with my insurance company, but um, once the crowd center who is the LGBTQ health center here got me the approval I was good to go. And that was probably one of the best decisions I've also made and was so much easier to recover from. Yeah. Transition can look different for so many people. You know, it, it might not be surgeries. It might not be multiple surgeries. It might be one surgery. It might be none at all. You know, so it's, again, it almost comes back to that queer word, you know, in a way it's just like, it means something different for every person. And so it's so personal and yeah. whether or not someone has surgery doesn't make them more or less of a man or a woman or a non-binary person, you know, that's not what makes us who we are. It's just inside of us. And it's us, yes. what we know ourselves to be. It's what you feel will define best how you feel inside. And have you felt after surgeries, the transitioning periods, have you felt yourself and your energy shifting in any way, feeling more like yourself because you're the outside represented the inside as well? Definitely. I mean, especially after my top surgery, because I suppose, you know, hysterectomy is a little less visible <laughs> since it is actually inside of you. But the top surgery, for sure. I mean, it was like putting on just a T-shirt and being out in the world was like, this is the most amazing thing. Like, I just finally felt like I at least somewhat resembled like who I knew myself to be. And maybe in a way it was like hearkening back to that six year old little kid who looked down at their chest and looked at their brother and was like, we look the same. But then I didn't, you know, once I hit puberty and all of those things, I no longer looked the same. And it was this, it was almost this returning to myself in a way. And that was really, really powerful. And, and like I said, I think this has been part of my healing, healing journey as well. I mean, being trans also gives me just a different perspective on the world. It helps me see that things are not so black and white, mm. you know, things that in the past I thought were very, like, it has to be this way or that way like being trans and, and seeing that the world is, is just so much grayer is full of so much more nuance and undefinedness, you know, like we define all this stuff. We're making it all up, you know, like we are making it all up. It's, it's not, it's just because someone once said you're a man or someone once said you're, this is what women are. That, that's a rule we have now gone by, but science is even showing that's like not even true. Yes. Um, not to mention, but I heard um, I heard somebody talking about AI technology. And one of the things that the professor was saying was that, like, even our brains make up information, just like the AI. The AI is just figuring out what the next word will be. Well, that's what our brains do. If we see something out of the corner of our eye, our brain fills in the rest of the information. It's basically made up. It's basically made up. And we're so stuck on this, like, well, this is what it is. There are men, there are women, people should be straight, you know, just all of these things. And it's just like, that's all made up. It's all made up. 
100%. What I love about the queer community is that collectively, we're, it, it, queering is a state of mind. It's a different perspective on life. It's yeah. about questioning everything, questioning the system, questioning the dogma, questioning the rule book. Because yep. when you are queer, there is no rule book. So you have to create your That's own right. rule book. And I, I tell this all the time to my, to my straight customers and clients when they, they are having like relationship issues and they're struggling in, in their relationship with their family, with their wife, et cetera. And it's because when you are straight, and this is of course not a generalization, like in general, okay, straight people don't have to come out. Straight yeah. people don't have to negotiate monogamy or negotiate polyamory or negotiate their relationship dynamics. It's totally. a given to them. Totally. This is a set thing that has been practiced for many years by so many people. And this is the path you're supposed to follow. And I yep. see this now while I'm watching Love is Blind. Okay. So they all come into the game, you know, the, yep. the Netflix show. And yep. they're like, I can't wait to meet the man that I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. This right. rest of my life triggers me so much. I'm like, why does it have to be the fucking rest of your life? Why right. couldn't it be what Abraham Hicks say until it's fun? <laughs> totally. Totally. Who says we're supposed to be with one person our entire life? If if that's our our sole contract, fair right. enough. But right. why future trip by entering into this situation with so many rules and you're expected to follow every single rule and follow the same path when you're such a unique person, completely different from every 100%. single person around you? This is yep. what queering is. It's about totally. challenging all of that and creating new rules. Now, Alex, tell totally. us a little bit about your book. It's called What Needs to Be Said. Why did you write the book? What was your intention behind writing it? And what do you uh, expect people to get from it? It's kind of built in three parts. So the origin is the first part, which is like my childhood, my story, and then kind of, you know, calling people to look then at their own origins and what stuff came up for them. And then it ends with practices that can help you work through some of your traumas, pains, struggles from your origin. The second part is called the struggle. Uh, and that is really sort of like when you're in it, when you're in the weeds, as Brene Brown says, and just like, you know, my sort of those middle years after coming out, like losing my faith, um, losing a lot of community, all of that kind of stuff. And then how I began to start to find the spiritual stuff again. Um, and then again, at that, at the end of that part, it has practices, different, different workbook things for people to do. And then the last part is called the emergence. And that is really like sort of me coming out, like through into transition, which was both a spiritual and a physical experience for me. And then just like where it's brought me and where the healing ha has brought me. And then again, I finished that with some sort of worksheet practices. Um, and it all has different uh, writing prompts and different things. Uh, each chapter has, has that for people to do on their own work and, and things like that as well. So, so yeah. And then it was, you know, sort of flying into this different world of Hay House going, yeah, we'd like to publish your book. And I'm like, this is a crazy world. <laughs> like, you know, after 10 years after my friend had told me, I see you talking on the Hay House stage, you know, here I was um, getting my book published by Hay House. Yes, so it was amazing. It was meant to be. And it shows that when you show up for you, the universe shows up for you. And I love how balanced the book is between the, mem the memoir stuff, the autobiographical content, and also practical pr processes that people can use to create change. Because yes, 
stories are powerful, but then how can we apply that on into our own life as well? Definitely, definitely. And the thing I wanted to have people see is, you know, there is so much anti-transness, anti, just there's a lot going on right now. There's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of like people trying to cause confusion. And the thing I wanted to have happen the most, and, and the beautiful thing is this is one of the reviews I got from the amazing author, Sonia Choquette, which was, I want people to read the book and to see themselves in my story and to realize that while you might think, you know, someone who might be say a a cis straight woman might go, I don't have anything. How am I going to get something out? But I promise you, if you read this and do the practices and all stuff, you will find yourself in my story. And that was one of the reviews. And that's what Sonia, one of the things she said was that you'll see yourself in this book. And that touched me. 100% because we all go through struggles in life and the struggles have similar themes. The details and the context may be different, but the themes are the same. Like I, my, my story, my, my first book, Be the Guru is all about my coming out journey. And like 90% of my audience are straight, cis straight women. (laughs) So amazing. And they still resonated with that story. Exactly. our stories are powerful and that's why it's very important to share them. And thank you so much for sharing it today, Alex, on the podcast. You're such an inspiration and the book will change so many lives and provide so many tools for healing. Can you please share a little bit uh, with people and tell us where people can get in touch with you and work with you? You bet. And also get so, the book from. Yes, you bet. So I know you'll put, uh, George will put my website uh, on the link, but it's just alexregan.com. So you can find me on the web. Um, I do still work with people one-on-one and in small groups, and I do workshops and speaking events and things like that as well. Um, So you can certainly reach out to me that way. The book is available. You can find it. If you go to my website, you'll find just direct links. You can go right to it, but you can find it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Yes. The book is called What Needs to be Said by Alex Regan. Alex, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I greatly appreciate it. It was great to talk to you. It was just really enjoyable. Thank you for tuning in. If you have any insights or a story to share, message me on Instagram at George Lizos and tell me all about it. I would love to hear from you.